This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 17, Time Keeps on Slipping into the Futures, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creeder, Ben Reitzis, Dan Belton, John Hill, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our outlook for U.S. and Canadian rates, IG spreads, and FX with the market swaying between optimism on the race for a vaccine versus the ultimate and unknown level of economic destruction in the face of re-lockdowns. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So we're several months into the pandemic. U.S. rates remain dependent on its path and remain also contained in a range. At the same time, the equity market is vacillating, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, between optimism driven by better than expected economic data and positive news in the vaccine race versus pessimism driven by the ultimate level of economic destruction, which is currently unknown. Despite the retracement, The equity market is pricing in some level of destruction as the market's bifurcated between the winners and the losers during this period of social distancing. So on the one hand, the eventuality of a vaccine, whether it's in three, six, or nine months, actually provides a light at the end of the tunnel, and we move toward this light simply with the passage of time. This leaves us to focus on whether or not the fiscal government can pass the next leg of stimulus before they recess in August in order to continue to plug the great big hole in GDP. In the near term, we think event risk remains elevated given the global and domestic backdrop especially including the U.S. elections in November and the fact that the first debate isn't scheduled until late September. There are also some near-term technical factors in the third quarter that may impact U.S. rates. So let's open up our discussion, as we usually do, with U.S. rates. Ian, how are you thinking about the long end of the Treasury curve here? Well, Margaret, I think you touched on a very important notion, and that is the impact of the passage of time. That's something that Chair Powell highlighted at the beginning of the pandemic, and there does seem to be some degree of habituation taking place in financial markets at this point. Now, we see that in Treasury space with the curve a directional trade with the front end locked into monetary policy expectations and 10 and 30 year yields, largely a function of the fluctuation in the economic outlook. Now, eventually, inflationary concerns will work through the system and put some upward pressure on 10 and 30 year rates. However, that's not this month's trade not this quarter's trade. That's something that remains out on the horizon. And in fact, with, as you point out, that passage of time, some of the goalposts have been pushed off as re-lockdowns become a reality, 
as the slower process toward reengaging the economy in the new normal has transpired, we find ourselves in a situation where 10-year yields at 70 basis points really isn't something that the market is either excited or disinterested in. Frankly, for a group of fixed income strategists, the amount of time that we have all spent focusing on equity market performance and it as an indicator for broader investor sentiment, I think is very telling. And I think it's a function of the new reality. And that new reality involves a Fed with an expanding balance sheet and a federal government presumably willing to step up with additional fiscal policy if and when needed. Yeah, Ian. And another important facet of what we've been seeing recently is the outperformance of the economic data. It almost goes without saying at this point that the trough of the recession occurred in April, and some of the strength we've seen in a variety of indicators, probably most notably the jobs numbers, have now pushed the economic surprise index to all-time highs. Now, clearly the equity market seems to be taking notice of this, but even with such strong reads on economic performance in May and June, the fact that the long end of the treasury curve has held in such a remarkably tight range, exactly as you say, really highlights to me the uncertainty that lays ahead in the coming months. Now, a question I've heard asked pretty frequently is, to what degree is the next round of fiscal stimulus baked into current valuations, whether that be equity prices or credit products? So I guess I'll ask Dan the question, given what we've seen spreads do over the past several months and the past several weeks, is there a risk that Washington fails to deliver on whatever form of stimulus comes next, and we could see a reversal of some of the tightening we've seen? That's a very important question, Ben, because I do think that there is a significant probability of additional fiscal stimulus built into risk assets at current levels. The administration has given us every indication that there is going to be more fiscal stimulus, but there's not a ton of time for them to work that out. The Senate goes back into session on July 20th, and then they have just three weeks before a month-long recess on August 8th to get that stimulus pushed through. And the stimulus process might not go as smoothly as it did in March when the pandemic sort of superseded any partisanship and there was this general spirit in Congress to push it across. Even Senate Majority Leader McConnell in a recent interview said as much. He said he expected another round of stimulus, but that he wasn't sure that they would be able to pass it in the same unanimous fashion that they did back in March and that the political environment has changed, which really increases the potential for an underwhelming fiscal stimulus that I think could also result in an increase in risk aversion. So you guys pointed out some very important things, uncertainty around stimulus, uncertainty around the development of economic data. We also have uncertainty around vaccines with phase three trial results expected to hit in August and September. So just given where credit spreads are currently, it's questionable as to whether or not spreads can move to pre-pandemic levels. But then even if risk appetite remains extremely supportive, it's not clear that spreads have room to tighten significantly. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Spreads right now are, at, like you said, around 140 basis points. Now that's below a long-term average of spreads. And given the risks and economic uncertainty on the horizon, it's clear that there's a great deal more fiscal stimulus priced in. Now, if you look at the dividend yield of the S&P 500 versus the all-in yield on the investment grade corporate index, the yield pickup from investing in corporate debt over investing in stocks is at all-time lows right now. And while there's reason to expect that risk aversion should be high, enticing investors up the capital structure, the amount of stimulus in the system should give investors some confidence that you know, widespread defaults of investment-grade corporations are 
unlikely, at least in the medium term. Now, maybe more likely are some incremental downgrades, but either way, even given the massive rally in equities, there's reason to think that stocks are somewhat more attractive than corporate debt at the moment. There's less upside in terms of capital appreciation to corporate spreads than there are to maybe equities. So I think you both make some really interesting points. I do think that we have to consider some of the tailwinds, though, in the corporate market. You know, spreads have come a long way, but the Fed is also buying corporates. Yeah, Margaret, there's definitely significant tailwinds from the Fed buying corporate assets, as well as the potential for more fiscal stimulus, as we talked about earlier. But to get back to pre-pandemic spreads, let's think about what pre-pandemic spreads really represent. Spreads were at the bottom of historical trading ranges after the end of a multi-year yield grab environment where volatility was almost non-existent. Yes, risk assets have rallied all the way back and treasuries are trading in a pretty tight range right now. But the one thing that hasn't gone away in the past four months is volatility. There's still significant volatility in the financial system and there's likely to be significant volatility looking ahead to the next few months where we have to deal with vaccine, stimulus, lockdown, virus headlines, what have you, not to mention the November presidential election. So there's going to be volatility. And amid that significant volatility, I just don't think spreads can get back to where they were prior to the pandemic at least not in the near term. Dan, I think you make a really interesting point about highlighting that the Fed is supporting the equity market in addition to all of the other markets. And if the equity dividends are paying you more than corporates, you know, why not take that additional risk? Listening to our rate strategy team uh, do their best to be amateur equity strategists kind of makes me laugh. And three months ago, they were amateur epidemiologists, but in FX, we're the same. We've transitioned from being amateur epidemiologists to rate strategists, and that's simply because FX typically is looking for something to follow. And with interest rates parked, that's something that the FX market is attached to is the equity market. And so the uh, U.S. dollar index looks exactly like the S&P 500, just upside down almost the exact same degree of retracement and probably the same profile going forward for at least the next month or two. So the risk factors for the equity market are the risk factors for the dollar, just that they would push it higher rather than lower. So as discussed, the risk factor of disappointment on fiscal policy is is one of those factors. But you know, I point out that the other thing out there, when we talk about economic surprise industries, hitting highs, that is not just a U.S. phenomena, that is a global phenomena, and it has been another quiet part of the story that has pushed the dollar lower. Those are great points, Greg, and I think one of the things that has come up in, in everyone's comments is this issue of how much or how little stimulus. And what's interesting to me is that since the start of July, China has joined the reflation camp, given that the local equity market is up north of 10% in Q3 alone. And China's currency has also experienced a decent rally against the dollar over the last few days, at least in dollar RMB terms, it was a pretty big move. And I think this helped frames the narrative because on the one hand, it's clear when you look at some of the data on the production side and the consumption of raw materials in China, the central government's stimulus is definitely feeding through. But on the other hand, we see China allowing its currency to appreciate versus the US dollar in what is a pretty subdued environment for global trade and industrial activity. And we also know that leverage in China's economy was high heading into COVID-19. 
and corporate profits in China were languishing for all of 2019. So you have to ask yourself, is this rally in Chinese equities and the whole reflation dynamic real or is it make-believe? And if it's make-believe, how much capacity does China actually have to stimulate production, investment, and ultimately household demand. The composition of Chinese GDP and pre-existing conditions in China's economy suggests that capacity is far from endless. So there are definitely risks here. I'm not advising right now how to trade dollar RMB. I think that's an issue that is much more related to the US election cycle and a few other factors. But there's definitely sign of reflation in China. The question is, how real is it? Well, Stephen, to your point, I think that there is this perception that the market is waiting for something that risks not being delivered. And when we think about the comparable conversations that we were having in the middle of March or even in April as equities continued to rally and as credit spreads came in and as it appeared that the Chinese economy was recovering more quickly than expected, I recall we were making largely the same arguments, and that is that the market, particularly equities, has gotten ahead of itself and pricing in additional stimulus is still on the table. But even I was making the argument that the market was pricing in zero probability of another round of lockdowns. And we've got another round of lockdowns or a slowing of the reopening process, a spike in COVID-19 cases, and still the S&P 500 is above 3,100. And the Fed hasn't done a great deal more. Now they've kept on with the programs that they had in place. We actually haven't even seen the transition to target-specific forward guidance or anything other than delaying the process of any implementation of yield curve control. So we're in a bit of a holding pattern. But as a market, my sense is that we're waiting for another shoe to drop and we keep waiting for that shoe, but we get further and further and further off of the lows. I don't know how one trades that in this environment other than simply to concede the mantra of buy the dip. So Ian, I think you make a really interesting point and it brings me back to how we started with the idea of the passage of time. And as time simply goes on, in the backdrop of a race to a vaccine, which would presumably slow down the spread of the virus and allow the economy to continue to reopen, I think the equity market's looking past the current shutdowns and the current rise in virus cases and looking toward that ultimate virus endpoint. One other thing the passage of time has very much helped with is allowing the U.S. government to get to a point where it'll be easier to fund any future fiscal program. What I mean by this is if there was one thing that was thematic in Q2 for the front end of the Treasury market, it was enormous Treasury bill issuance. As we move further into Q3, that upward pressure in bill issuance should moderate somewhat. That, when combined with a $1.6, $1.7 trillion cash balance that the Treasury has parked at the Fed, what it really does is it opens up fiscal space to fund any next stimulus program. So what I mean by all this, and Margaret, this meshes very well with the point you made about the passage of time for the equity market, is if there's another stimulus program, the impact to funding conditions, the risk of crowding out any type of broader financial conditions is significantly lower in Q3 than it was in Q2. 
So John, you mentioned the treasury cash balance of 1.6 trillion, which is an incredible amount of money that's still sitting on the sideline waiting to be deployed. And this large sum is in the backdrop of the federal government, Congress, attempting to pass the second wave, of course, in order to extend some of the programs that are expiring and continue to plug the economic hole that the economy is currently in. I think that's a good point, Margaret. And that is something that governments globally are dealing with. And it's been a common theme discussed so far, stimulus in China, stimulus in the U.S., really stimulus everywhere, because right now governments and central banks are really the only game in town. That's impacted Canada as well, pretty materially. We've put in place significant fiscal stimulus on the federal side, and there's been big borrowing. And the big drop in GDP combined with the fiscal stimulus put in place means big deficits. And that drove one of the major rating agencies, Fitch, to downgrade Canada's credit rating to double A plus. But that really didn't prompt any market reaction at all. That same day, there was a modest sell-off, more based on government talk of maybe extending the maturity of their debt rather than the downgrade itself. And since then, we've seen rates rally back to resistance levels that we saw pre-downgrade. So this is likely a story that we're going to see globally. Ratings coming under some pressure given the fiscal backdrop, but there's no reason to believe that with central banks putting the pedal to the metal, buying as many bonds as they can, keeping rates low, that it's going to have any real impact on the rates market generally. Thanks, Ben, for your comments on Canada. You know, we cover quite a bit of ground in today's podcast, and with so many different topics flying around, I'd like to mix it up this time and do a quick roundtable bottom line, and I will start it with Ian. So bottom line, we're going to be in a range for treasury yields, particularly 10s and 30s, that will create buying opportunities and selling opportunities when we're up against extremes. Similarly, with the curve, directional trade, watch the steepener-flattener trade-off as we get to levels we haven't seen in a while. And as it relates to risk assets, buy the dip. John Hill? For short rates, the bottom line is we're moving away from that period of extraordinary bill issuance to a much more moderate flow. The Fed is going to continue to inject liquidity, and with credit spreads rather tight, it's not crazy to see three-month LIBOR within five basis points of record lows. I expect this to be pretty thematic for the rest of Q3. And Jeffrey? As the economy has recovered from the depths of the recession, the impressive beats in several of the top-tier economic data really leaves the question of how long this can go on and to what extent another round of fiscal stimulus is baked in to risk asset valuations, whether that be stocks or credit products. Dan Creter? Yeah, my bottom line is sort of alongside Ian's. I think you want to buy the dip. But where I diverge a little bit is that I think there's going to be a dip and potentially a significant one in credit spreads in the near term as we price in some uncertainty heading into the fall months, as well as just the asymmetrical risk return profile currently offered by credit spreads, especially given their relative value compared to equities. Dan Bouton? Spreads have come a long way narrower over the past three months due to primarily technical factors and a lot of stimulus. But most of the monetary stimulus in the system and that the Fed will provide in the coming months has already been priced. And so the bar for further narrowing has been raised. Greg Anderson? Rates may be range bound, but the U.S. dollar is trending and that trend is headed lower. I would say the trend is your friend. And yes, there might be a pullback, but you've got to stick with the trend. Stephen Gallo? On the international front, the first thing I would say is buyer beware. So 
If you're buying into the China reflation story, just make sure you know what you're buying. China is not a free market economy. Similar thing with the eurozone. There's not an overly dynamic fiscal story for the eurozone. You're buying into a socialized economy. Know the risks. Know what you're buying. And then my final comment would be macro-wise. If you are putting on big risk exposure in dollar CNH or euro dollar right now, you have to start making assumptions about the November election outcome if you're going to have big risk on in either one of those pairs. Ben Reitzes. Canadian rates will probably remain range-bound, similar to the U.S., as Ian mentioned. Watch similar themes, but it's hard to bet against central banks, the Bank of Canada, the Fed, the ECB, will continue to be buying assets that will be consistently supportive of risk. And I don't think you want to be betting against that at this point. All right. And I'll go last. I think that the market is going to continue to vacillate. I think that on the one hand, there'll be optimistic days and weeks based on expectations for a vaccine. And on the other hand, I think that we're going to grapple with the degree of ultimate economic destruction and the inability of the government and the Fed to offset all of the destruction. All right, great. I think that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 17. Time keeps slipping into the futures. Please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thank you.